0: Good morning. I invite you to uh, read the scriptures with me this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Uh, before we do that though, if there's anyone here who does not have a Bible, uh, Warren will be happy to hand you one. If you just raise your hand, he can, he can get you one right away. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, starting at the first of that chapter and reading down through verse 35. Uh, it's kind of a long passage, but uh, praise the Lord, we're part of a church body here who uh, makes, makes scripture a, a primary focus every Sunday. Uh, So, uh, anyway, I I invite you to, to read along with me. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people from his name. For his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. And from sexual immor- immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses, had, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same great excuse me, the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements: that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would uh, continue to bless this service now as we transition from, from worshiping you in song to worshiping you through the, hearing the, the word of God. Or we, we just pray that you would speak to each one of us, prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive your word. And God, I pray that uh, we will not just uh, leave that here, but that we will take it with us in our hearts, Lord, and, and uh, apply your word to our lives every day of this week, Father. Lord, I also pray that if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice this morning who does not know you, who does not know my Lord and Jesus as their Savior, as their friend, as their Lord, I pray, Lord, that uh, today would be the day that they would meet you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.
1: Amen. Thank you very much, John. I realized last night, uh, probably about 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night, that there is absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to preach that whole passage uh, in the short time that we have today. Uh, that's a, that's a long, long passage to read, isn't it, John? Uh, let alone preach. So, um, so I did a little quick adjustments, and, uh, and, and this morning we are going to tackle uh, the first, I'd say the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 15... And what I'd like to do is, in Bible study, right after this time, uh, downstairs and Explore the Bible, uh, you're probably going to have some lingering questions, some thoughts, comments, whatever, about things that we have not covered, uh, and, and I want us to, to talk about those. So we'll pick it up in a kind of a give-and-take conversation downstairs, but for now, endure the monologue, it's just me up here. So, uh, so Acts chapter 15 um, in the first 11 verses. <clears throat> there are um, many who look at the various religions of the world and, uh, and they, come to a, uh, they come to the conclusion that it really doesn't matter which one you pick. Uh, many, many say that there's lots of different paths. Uh, they all lead to the top of the mountain. But they're all basically the same. You probably have heard similar sentiments uh, before. Now, my gut reaction to that kind of talk is to, is to push back and say, are you, are you kidding me? Are you, are you crazy? Do you know about all the different religions that, that are out there? All religions basically are not the same. They all say different things. They have different gods. They have different rules. Some of them even disagree with each other. And in one sense, this is true. There are some big differences between uh, Mormonism, Islam, and Buddhism, for example. But if you think about that imagery of different paths going up to the top of the mountain, there is one important similarity in the world religions. And and this one thing really makes the world religions essentially the same at the core. The similarity is that in all of these religions, it's about you climbing the mountain under your own strength, under your own power, with your own ability, relying on your own efforts to get you to the top of that mountain. And so at its heart, at their heart, all of these world religions are basically the same. At its core, it's all about you. And, and, and we all have this pull, uh, if, if not to eliminate God, at least minimize God and exalt ourselves as we climb to the top of the mountain. But you know what? This is nothing new. This has been going on for a long, long time. It's been going on since Adam tried to be his own god in the garden, trying to obtain a heaven on, his, heaven on his own, in his own way, taking his own path, and all of the descendants of Adam fall into the exact same trap. And, and we see this trap being sprung for the early church in Acts chapter 15. And as we continue our study in the book of Acts, I want to remind you that this book chronicles the, the birth and growth and the expansion of the early church, and it also chronicles the opposition that the early church faced. And they faced, uh, faced all kinds of opposition, didn't it? We've been reading about it in the chapters prior. Uh, we, we've seen intense persecution in the church. We've seen people be put in jail for following Christ. We've seen people even killed for the gospel. We've seen corruption in the church. We've seen greed in the church. We see both religious and, and government institutions that are that are officially oppressing the church. We've seen all kinds of attacks against the church, but in Acts chapter 15, I think what we see here is the most vicious satanic attack yet. And what is at stake here is is not just someone being put in jail. It's not someone being beheaded. What's at stake in Acts 15 is much more serious. It's the very essence of the gospel itself, the gospel that saves men from hell. And what is also at stake is the glory of God. And so as we go into Acts chapter 15 and and these first few verses, I I want us to look at three main overarching things. Uh, One of the things is uh, the attack against the gospel. Second thing we'll look at is the defense of the gospel. And the third thing we'll look at is why we need the gospel. Let's start with the attack against the gospel. Now, Acts chapter 14 ends on a positive note. There's been some good things, despite the, the persecution and some of the opposition that's been coming against the church, there's been some good things that have been happening. Uh, we have seen uh, the, the the church at Antioch um, uh, spearhead a missionary effort to preach the gospel to Gentile people, to non-Jewish people. In the beginning of the church, it was primarily a Jewish thing, and you had pretty much the this church in Jerusalem, and it was, it was very... Uh, uh, Hebrew-centered. But as the gospel is expanding, uh, uh, the the message is going beyond Jerusalem. Eventually, a church is planted in this place called Antioch, and Antioch is is very mission-minded. They're very much interested in taking the message beyond the Jews, and they send out Paul and Barnabas to go to Gentile-dominated regions and to preach the gospel. And many, many non-Jews now are coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Acts 14 ends on a good note. In uh, verse, uh, verse 24 it says, Then they sailed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So good things are happening with the church. Then you get to verse 15, and you have that all-crucial word there, but. (laughs) All these good things are happening, but. Now this happens in chapter 15. We see an attack against the gospel. Look again at the the first, uh, first verse there. But. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then you look again in verse 5, an attack against the gospel. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now for now, I just want to focus on this issue of circumcision And why this debate, why this is so important, what's going on here? The text says that you have men coming down from Judea. In other words, they were coming from the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the heart of Judea. Uh, The church in Jerusalem was primarily a Jewish-centered church. And they were coming from the church in Jerusalem to the church of Antioch. And remember, the church of Antioch has a huge focus on Gentile missions. Gentiles were coming to Christ through the ministry of this church at Antioch. Lots of them were coming. And since they were Gentiles, they weren't circumcised. They weren't keeping Jewish traditions and and customs. And and you've got these teachers coming to Antioch from uh, from Jerusalem, and and they're saying, okay, yeah, you know what? It is great, guys. These Gentiles are coming to Christ. They're believing in Christ. That's all great. But you know what? They've got to be circumcised. That's, that's got to be done. Now, Why? What's the big deal about this? Well, you remember, uh, uh, in the mind of a first century Jew, and in the mind of Jews for centuries before this, circumcision had everything to do with being identified with the people of God. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with the Jews, starting with Abraham, Abraham the father of the Jewish nation, and at the heart of this covenant was that Abraham, who is old and childless, would have a son, and his descendants would become a great nation. And the immediate fulfillment of this promise was what we know uh, as Old Testament Israel. But beyond being the father of one nation, he would be the father of many nations, and the whole world would be blessed through him. In Genesis 17, God ratifies this covenant with Abraham. And listen to what God says in Genesis 17, starting at verse 9. God says to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So shall my covenant be in your flesh. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So you can imagine these Jewish, uh, these Jewish believers pointing back to the Bible. <laughs> you know, they're, they're talking to the people, and they're pointing to the Bible and look, look, read Genesis 17. Read what, this, read what this says, guys. It says that God's people are to be circumcised, and it says that any uncircumcised male shall be cut off. He's broken the covenant. You can't be a part of God's people without this circumcision, period. And Luke tells us this breaks out into a huge controversy. Luke, the writer of Acts. Now, I think that the book of Galatians gives us a little bit more insight into what was going on in Acts 15. Uh, I believe that Galatians was written by Paul during the height of this controversy. And a lot of scholars think he even wrote Galatians while he was on his way to Jerusalem, to this council of Jerusalem that we read about in Acts 15. And Paul's pretty fired up in the book of Galatians. If you read the book of Galatians, Paul is hot. He is fired up. He, he is upset at a group of teachers that are going around causing trouble and telling people that they need to be circumcised. And I think Paul is writing about the same gang that Luke is telling us about in Acts 15. Historically, they were known as Judaizers people uh, because they were teaching the people that they had to become Jews. They had to be circumcised, they had to follow Jewish laws and traditions, they had to eat kosher foods, etc., etc. They had to become Jews before becoming Christians. Acts 15 calls them the party of the Pharisees. Paul in Galatians calls them the circumcision party. Now I don't think the words circumcision and party really go together, but that's an entirely different conversation. In Galatians 3, Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about certain men from James coming down from Judea to Antioch. That phrase, certain men from James, is referring to James, James reading about in Acts 15. Not the Apostle James, who was martyred. He was beheaded a few chapters ago. Okay, this James is the brother of Jesus Christ. He was an unbeliever during the time when Jesus was walking on earth, but but sometime he became a believer, probably after the resurrection of Christ. And James appears to be the chief elder at the church in Jerusalem at this time. And so in Galatians, when Paul talks about certain men from James coming to Antioch, he's talking about the men in the Jerusalem church. And I think these men in Galatians are the same men Luke is talking about in the beginning of Acts 15, when he says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. I think these are the same guys. And I think they're really stirring things up. And they're also really confusing and upsetting Gentile believers. It's interesting in Galatians 1-7, Galatians Paul says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ." And that word trouble there, that comes from the, the this Greek translation of the of the word tarasso, which literally means to shake back and forth and therefore to agitate and stir up. So these Gentile believers are really stirred up and they were really agitated. And I'm sure the male Gentiles were especially agitated and stirred up when they were told they had to be circumcised. And there was a huge debate in Antioch thanks to these teachers, and it was pretty heated. In fact, Luke, Luke tells us in verse 2 of Acts 15, it says, And after Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And I love how Luke writes. He's, He says, no small dissension and debate. In other words, when these Christian Pharisees started teaching that you had to be circumcised to be saved, it was on, man. That's it. It's time to roll up our sleeves and go to the mat over this one. That just set Paul off. That just set Barnabas off. And they were willing to fight over this one. And so, the text goes on to say in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas... And some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Paul is mad at these guys. Paul is so mad that he says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 2, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Yikes. Yikes. So I think we have a pretty good idea of how Paul felt about these guys. It's probably also why Paul's teamed up with Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas is the son of encouragement, you know, he's saying positive things, right? He's kind of a fun guy to be around. Paul's just bold. He says, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. He's mad. So, so so why is Paul so angry? I mean, everybody's entitled to their their own religious beliefs, right? I mean, I mean, people can believe whatever they want to. As long as they're not hurting other people, right? The reason why Paul is so angry is because these teachers are distorting the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. ...and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven... ...should preach to you a gospel... ...contrary to the one we preach to you... ...let him be accursed. As we've said before... ...and now I say it again... ...if anyone is preaching to you a gospel... ...contrary to what to the one you received... ...let him be accursed. These teachers were undermining... ...the true gospel of Christ... ...and they were replacing it... ...with a false gospel. And so you can't say... well. Who cares as long as they're not hurting anyone? The message is hurting and affecting others because the gospel Paul explains in Romans 1 is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So salvation is at stake here. The message of salvation is at stake. And this is why Paul is so upset. To accept another gospel is to accept damnation in hell forever. And the essence of the true gospel is that one is saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. To trust in circumcision, good works, being religious, or whatever else for your salvation is not to trust Christ. And and what those Judaizers were teaching in the first century is being taught everywhere today. Not not that people are teaching that you must be circumcised, not teaching Christ plus circumcision necessarily, but teaching Christ plus circumcision. Church attendance, Christ plus baptism, Christ plus following these rules or following those rules, Christ plus being a good person. Sure, we need Christ, but it just can't be Christ alone, can it? I mean, that's too simple. Surely, we think, instinctively, we think there must be something that we can bring to the table in regards to salvation, This is, by the way, the common denominator for all of the the pseudo-Christian cults out there, like Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, what have you. All these cults that incorporate Jesus into their teachings, they like Jesus. They want Jesus. They may even worship Jesus, but Jesus is not enough. They wouldn't like that song that we sang at the beginning, your grace is enough. They like Jesus, but he's not enough. And really, you can can expand that idea to completely different religions altogether that really have no no connection with Christianity. Maybe they don't acknowledge Christ, but they have some sort of deity. They have some sort of higher power that they acknowledge. Yes, God is there, but you know what? We're a team, me and God. And so basically what you have is a synergistic religion, which is a religious worldview worldview. That most people have, and you'll find it even in some Christian churches. A synergistic religion is a religion of man and God working together towards man's salvation. In other words, man and God cooperate with one another. Man, sure, man can't do it on his own. We all know that. Man needs a little bit of help, man needs God. But synergistic religion says, but God also needs man. God needs man to do something, and when man does his part, and then God does his part, bam-o, you got salvation. It's a tag-team effort. But the Bible teaches differently. Salvation is not synergistic, it's monergistic, which means that the the work of salvation is all done by one party, God. God does the saving, God does the rescuing, God does all of the work in every aspect of your salvation, and now someone may push back and and say, well, I did something, didn't I? I mean, oh, I know, I got it, I believed, all right? I reached out to God, okay? So I I did something. Yes, you believed, but why did you believe? You believe because God opened your heart so that you could believe. We're going to read this in the very next chapter. In Acts chapter 16, we're going to meet a woman named Lydia. And Paul is preaching to her. And the the text says, this is in in, in Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Or remember what the scripture says in Ephesians 2, and so many of you probably have this by heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is saying that this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. What's a gift? The grace grace that you have is a gift of God. The salvation that you have is a gift of God. And the faith that you have is a gift of God. And what is a gift? A gift. A gift is something that you did not previously have that someone gives to you. And without the giver giving it to you, you would never have it in the first place. So you can't even take credit for the faith that you have in Christ either. Salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. And to trust in Christ plus something else is to not trust in Christ at all. So the very gospel is at stake here, which explains why Paul is so upset about this. All right, so that's the attack against the gospel. Let's move on to the defense of the gospel, which is given by Peter. Peter defends the gospel... By demonstrating that the evidence that these Gentile believers can be genuinely counted as God's people is not on the basis of an outward physical sign like circumcision, but rather through an inward heart change wrought by the Holy Spirit. Now, these Pharisee Christians, these Judaizers, were wrong on two counts. Okay, They were, they were wrong in the sense that they thought that circumcision was required for salvation But they were also wrong in thinking that circumcision was the required mark, marking out the people of God in the new covenant. The Judaizers did not realize that times were changing. And they were moving from an Old Testament, Old Covenant situation to a new covenant situation. And the Old Testament, God was primarily working how? Through a theocratic nation, through Israel. And this nation was made up primarily of ethnic Jews. And it was, this nation was filled with both believers and unbelievers, with both saved and unsaved people. As a matter of fact, I would dare say that a significant portion of Old Testament Israel was unsaved. And by the time you get to the Jewish exile, when God was using foreign lands to punish Israel, Israel was mostly apostate, with just a few faithful believers just hanging on. Faithful remnant, hanging on. But regardless of that, all the males were circumcised, marking them out as being part of this nation. But just like so much of what you see in the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel was a type and a shadow of something more. A type and a shadow of something better. Just like the land of, of Canaan, remember, uh, God promises Uh, the Jewish people and land, the land of Canaan, the promised land that Moses was leading the people out of slavery to, God promised them this land, this land flowing with milk and honey, just like the land of Canaan points to a better land, the new heavens and the new earth, which we'll enjoy at the end of the age, just like the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament points us to a better lamb, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, Old Testament Israel points to a better Israel. Now, why is this new Israel better? Because the covenant that God makes with her is better. Author of the book of Hebrews talks a lot about how the things we see in the Old Testament are inferior types and shadows pointing us to New Testament realities that are so much better. In Hebrews 8, the author tells us that this new covenant is better than the old covenant. And he says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, he says, Christ has obtained a better ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Okay? But, but if that first covenant had been faultless, Hebrews goes on to say, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, if the first covenant was good enough, then why do a second covenant? And, and to explain why the new covenant is better than the old covenant, what does the author of Hebrews do? He quotes the Bible. He quotes Jeremiah 29, which is a prophecy looking forward to the new covenant. Now you can turn to Jeremiah 29 with me if you want. I'm going I'm to go ahead and read this portion so you don't have to worry about that, but you can go there if you want. But listen to what Jeremiah says in chapter 29 about the coming new covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The old covenant was breakable the New Covenant is not. And Jeremiah gives us a description of how, he inter- how, how God interacts with the New Covenant community. This community, Jeremiah says, won't break the covenant. They won't forsake their husband, to use the words that Jeremiah uses. This, this people of this community will have God's law written on their hearts. So there's a heart change in the people. And actually in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah expands on this. When, when, when he says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So the people in this new covenant community have forgiveness of sins. Uh, w- w- when you read the description of the new covenant community, you, you, you see that this was not true of everyone in the old covenant community. There were lots of people in, the old, in Old Testament Israel who didn't receive forgiveness of sin, lots. There, there, there were lots who didn't have God's law written on their hearts. There were lots of them that didn't have this heart change that Jeremiah is talking about. There were lots who were turning from God as compared to what Jeremiah is saying about the coming new covenant where people will not turn from God. So in a nutshell, according to Hebrews... Book of Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah, the New Testament Covenant is better than the Old Testament Covenant, and he cites the prophet Jeremiah as to why. And the prophet Jeremiah tells us that unlike the Old Testament Covenant community, this New Covenant community is going to be entirely composed of saved people, of believers. Now, let me ask you, what, what people does that sub- uh, uh, describe? What, what group of people is entirely made up of saved people? It's the church. The Ekklesia, to use the Greek word for church, the Ekklesia means the called out ones, called out by God. You, me, all who have received this new heart that Jeremiah talks about, this forgiveness of sins that Jeremiah talks about. All of us are a part of this new covenant community, which is called the church. And Paul, in Galatians 6, calls the church the Israel of God. You are the new Israel the better Israel that the Old Testament types and shadows are looking forward to. So if the covenant is new, and it makes sense that the, that the sign that marked out the people of God would, would be obsolete, the, 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 the old covenant sign would be obsolete. Right? If we're in a new situation, in a new covenant, circumcision of the flesh now is obsolete as marking out the people of God. What now is the mark of the New Testament community? Well, that takes us back to Acts chapter 15 and Peter's speech. Look at Acts 15, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. The Judaizers believed that the members of this new covenant community should be marked out by a circumcision of the flesh. Peter says no. The evidence that they belong to the people of God is due to a circumcision of their hearts. The Gentiles have received the Spirit of God in the same way that that the Jewish believers have. That makes them a part of the new Israel, and it makes them descendants of Abraham. As Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you, all the nations, shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, Paul says, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So you have the Judaizers saying these Gentile people need to become Jews before they can become Christians. And the gospel is telling us that no. They're already Jews. They're already part of the people of God. Again, as Paul says in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ, then you, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And just as Abraham's old covenant community descendants had to receive the mark of physical circumcision... ...to be considered a part of that community. So Abraham's New Covenant descendants... ...which is everyone in this room who believes in Christ... ...everyone who is of the faith... ...you receive the mark of spiritual circumcision. Paul says in Colossians 2... ...verse 11 and 12... ...in him... ...in Christ... ...in him... ...you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Circumcision of the heart is all about an inward heart change as opposed to a change in your physical body. And again, going back to the notion of, of synergistic religion versus monergistic religion, the heart circumcision is, is monogenistic. You can't circumcise your own heart. This, it has to be done for you. That's why Paul says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You were circumcised. Somebody circumcised your heart. It was a circumcision made without hands, so, so no human can take credit for that work. This heart circumcision is just another way of of, of phrasing the Jeremiah 32 New Covenant promise. Remember, Jeremiah says, I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for their own good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Who's doing the heart work here in, in Jeremiah? It's God. God describes himself as giving the people one heart. God is doing it. God is circumcising the heart. God is, as we said earlier, giving people the faith, the gift of faith, so that they can believe in the first place. So the conclusion is is that we are completely and utterly helpless and in 100% need of God to be saved. The Judaizers were right in one sense. They said you must be circumcised to be saved, but they were thinking of the wrong type of circumcision. It's not flesh circumcision that's required, but heart circumcision, which happens through faith. Now, I want to finish up by looking at the end of Peter's argument, which brings us to our third point, And that's why we need the gospel. Look at verse 10 in Acts 15. This is Peter. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test... By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter is talking about yoke bearing. This yoke to bear. What's he talking about? He's talking about the, the, the law of God. Often the law of God was referred to in that way as, as a yoke that you bear. Like oxen bear a yoke as they work. Uh, he's talking about the law of God. In particular, he's talking about the Old Testament Mosaic law, which the Jews tried to scrupulously keep. And remember, this debate was not just about circumcision. It was about all of God's law. Going back to verse 5, party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And when you consider the whole law, you're not just talking about circumcision... You're talking about all the law, the food laws, the Jewish festivals, other religious ritualistic laws, not to mention all of the moral laws of God, like the Ten Commandments, for example. These Pharisees were teaching that, sure, these Gentiles can come to Christ, but they got to be circumcised and they got to keep the law. Now, there's an unspoken message or sentiment behind the words of these Pharisees. They are saying something between the lines. Do, do you see what it is? If they are saying that the Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses to be saved, what are they saying about themselves? They're saying that they are keeping the law of Moses. Now, I want you to let that sink in. These people think that they are good law keepers. They, are faithfully, they think they're faithfully bearing the yoke of God's law and these Gentiles better do the same or they're not going to be saved like we are. They actually think that they're keeping God's law. Yet Peter says, you're going to place a yoke on these Gentiles that none of us have been able to bear. What's Peter saying? Peter's essentially saying, you think you're keeping the law, but you are lawbreakers and so am I. The law of God is, 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 doing, is more than just doing a few good things. It's more than just abstaining from pork sandwiches. or all those dietary laws that they had? It's more than those things. It's more than just looking good on the outside. The law of God runs deep to the heart. This is why Jesus had to come around and explain to people how serious the law of God was. Many of the Jews didn't get it. They said, well, you know what? God says, don't commit adultery. Hey, I've never cheated on my wife. Check that. I've done that. But Jesus turns around and says to them, if you have lusted after someone else in your heart, you have committed adultery. You have broken the law. Many of them say, "Well, you know what? Man, I know at least I've never killed anybody. I have never killed anybody." And Jesus turns around and says, Remember when you got angry at your brother the other day? You're guilty. You're guilty of murder. Can someone be saved by keeping God's law? Yes. Can being good get you into heaven? Yes. But here's the problem. You aren't keeping God's law. And you aren't good. And no one is, including those self-righteous Judaizers in Acts 15 who expected the Gentiles to keep the, the law of God. No one keeps God's law. Romans 3. Paul says, let me quote Paul. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul goes on to say in Romans 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's talking about everybody. Jew, Gentile, churchgoer, bar hopper, whatever. If you want a synergistic religion where you want to bring something to the table in respect to your salvation, good luck with that. You're doomed, my friend. If that's what you want, I mean, you can you can do that if you want to, but it's not going to work. When you stand before God. Because God's standard is perfection. And I am nowhere close to that standard. And neither are you. God is holy. And if all I did in my life was commit one sin. If all I ever did was commit one little white lie. It would justify God to send me to hell forever. And believe me my friend. Deemer has done a lot more than tell one little white lie. Let me tell you. James, in the book of James, chapter 2, says, for whoever keeps the whole law that fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So I'm guilty. You're guilty. Self-righteous Pharisees are guilty. The apostle Peter is guilty. Paul is guilty. We've all sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. This is what Peter says in verse 11 of Acts 15. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter's saying, you know what, guys? Us Jews, we're in the same way that they're in. It's through the grace of God. This is the gospel. Peter's saying, we can't bear this yoke, we can't do this, people. We can't keep the law. Our fathers couldn't bear this yoke. We can't. Our Gentile friends can't. But you know what? This is the beauty of the gospel of Christ. Once we get to that point of desperation where we realize that we can't do it, we're not good enough, we can't bear the yoke, that's when Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What does Jesus mean? Jesus is saying you don't have to bear the weight of trying to be good enough on your own. It's a load too heavy for you. Stop spinning your wheel, wheels. Stop, stop trying to carry the burden of your sins, the burden of your guilt. You will be crushed by those things. You cannot save yourself. Take Jesus' yoke instead. Jesus has done what you can't do. Jesus has obeyed the law perfectly. Jesus has fulfilled every aspect of the law. Jesus is the perfection that is required for you to stand before God. If you stand before God bringing your own righteousness, you will be destroyed before a holy God. But in the gospel, Christ offers his righteousness to us. And we wear it like a cloak. So that when we stand before God, we are wearing the perfection of Christ. And God will not punish us. Why? Because if you placed your trust in Christ, you've already been punished. Because when you trust him, an exchange happened. Christ took your sins, and then he gave you his righteousness... He was punished in your stead, and you go free. That's a great exchange. And after he was punished and died, he rose again. And because you are united to Christ through faith, not only does his righteousness become yours, but so does his conquest of death. You become forgiven. You become righteous. You become someone whose destiny is resurrection from the dead and you will receive an inheritance that belongs to all the sons of Abraham, all of those who have had heart circumcision and are a part of the people of God. Uh, For those of you who are not in my small group, on Thursday night we're going through a book called Radical by David Platt. Awesome book. Recommend that everyone in this room read it. And uh, David tells a story... ...that I really think sums up the difference between synergistic religion and monergistic religion. This is what David says in his book. I remember sitting outside a, a Buddhist temple in Indonesia. Men and women filled the elaborate, colorful temple grounds where they daily perform their religious rituals. Meanwhile, I was engaged in a conversation with a Buddhist leader and a Muslim leader in this particular community... They were discussing how all the religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different. We may have different views about small issues, one of them said, but when it comes down to essential issues, each of our religions is the same. I listened for a while, and then they asked me what I thought. I said, it sounds as though you pictured you both pictured God, or whatever you call God, at the top of the mountain. It seems as if you believe that we are all at the top, We are all at that mountain, and I may take one route up that mountain, and you may take another route, and in the end, we'll end up in exactly the same place. They smiled as I spoke. Happily, they replied, exactly. You understand. And then I leaned in and said, now, let me ask you a question. What would you think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain actually came down... To where we are. What would you think if I told you that God doesn't wait for people to find their way to Him, but instead He comes to us? And they thought for a moment and they responded, That would be great. I replied, Let me introduce you to Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. As long as you and I understand salvation as checking a box to get to God, checking off boxes, climbing up mountains, whatever. We're going to find ourselves in the meaningless sea of world religions that, that, that actually condemns the human race by exalting our supposed ability to get to God. On the other hand, when you and I realize that we are morally evil, dead in sin, deserving of God's wrath with no way out, out on our own, we begin to discover our desperate need for Christ. You see the biggest offense in world religions, the biggest offense in Acts 15 with the party of the Pharisees is that when we think we play any part whatsoever in salvation, in our salvation, we rob God of the glory that he is due. We want to share the spotlight with God. Hey, me and God did this. I needed God, yeah, but he needed me. He couldn't have saved me without my cooperation, Surely I did something to contribute to this. It's not that God couldn't have saved you without your cooperation. Rather, God saved you in spite of your lack of cooperation. That's the gospel, friends. I was dead in sin. I hated God. So did you. You may say, I never hated God. Yeah, yeah, you did. The Bible says so, so let's just accept that, okay? Okay. You did. We all express our hate in different ways. Some of us become Satanists and shake our fist at God. Others just go the exact opposite way of living our life in a way that God tells us not to live it. They're all different demonstrations of hate and contempt towards God. I was dead in sin. I hated God. I ran from God. My heart loved sin more than Him. And that was your state as well. So what happened? What turned you around? What changed you? Was it because you just, you had more willpower than your unsaved neighbor? Is that what changed you? You just you, you got it? You were smarter than him? What turned you around? Were we, were we drowning and God threw us a life preserver? And we were smart enough and had enough gumption in ourselves to reach out and grab that thing? And get saved? Is that what happened? No. That's not what happened to you or to me. I was dead. I was at the bottom of the ocean. I was totally lifeless. Breath gone from my body. God swam into those deep waters and he dragged my sorry carcass to the shore. And he breathed life into my nostrils. And I coughed and I sputtered and I opened my eyes. And when I opened it, as I opened my eyes, I saw before me the most beautiful thing in the world. I saw Jesus, and after seeing something so glorious and so beautiful, there was no way I could say no to him. He freed me up to respond to him. He took a heart of stone, changed it to a heart of flesh. That was God's gift to me. This whole thing is not about us, it's about him. It's about what he can do. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you take rebels like us, hardened sinners like us, insurrectionists against the cosmic king. Come in, and you circumcise our hearts. You give us life. You give us spiritual breath. God, forgive us for the times that we think we're something else. Forgive us for the times where we do good and we think it's because we're good. Father, forgive us for any time where we, whether intentionally or unintentionally, try to rob you of your glory that you do. And God, you didn't have to do any of this for anybody. You could have We are all sinners, we're all rebels. You could have consigned us all to hell and you would have been right to do that. Nobody would have been able to to point their finger at you and say that's not fair. But the whole point of the gospel is that those who are saved are not getting what they deserve. God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that your grace is enough. Thank God that I don't have to bring my works to the table. I'd be a doomed man. Father, I pray for anybody in this room that does not have circumcised hearts, has not been changed by you. God, my, my, my preaching can't do anything. Nobody's willpower or persuasive abilities can make someone bend the knee to Christ right now and receive you as Lord and Savior. So, God, I pray that you would do the work that I can't do and that they can't do. And that you would bring more to a saving knowledge of Christ. Thank you for who you are. And thank you for your love. Help us to love you more. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. we